Ernest Hemingway was sick of Paris. In fact, he had spent the last several months in the city dealing with the end of his torrid first marriage and enjoying the happy beginning of his torrid second marriage. He had been working as a foreign correspondent through most of the 20s and wrote his first novel, The Sun Also Rises. He would eventually return to Paris in the years after the Second World War, but as the opulence of the 20s faded, Hemingway was looking for new joys and a return to the United States, where he was born. It's noted by one biographer that at one point in his last months in Paris, he accidentally pulled a light down from the ceiling, which slashed his face and left him permanently scarred. Paris, it seems, had done its damage, literally. Hemingway had heard of a getaway in America that was attractive to him, an island paradise that was booming called Key West. He would wind up living in several places over the following years. Wyoming was his favorite summer getaway and he occasionally spent some time in Kansas City, but his winters during this period of his life were dedicated to the tropical paradise he soon adored. Hemingway was a self-described adventurer and found there was plenty of that available to him in the Florida Keys. He first arrived in April of 1928. He and his second wife Pauline were in troublesome conditions upon arrival. The Hemingway Home Museum in Key West today notes that the couple were waiting on a car that had been gifted by Pauline's uncle, but had nowhere permanent to stay yet. They stayed in an apartment on Simonton Street for three weeks, and during that time, Ernest wrote a part of A Farewell to Arms. It would take some time until they settled into their official home on Whitehead Street. It was eventually purchased in 1931, and the couple set about refurbishing their new yet old home. The house as well had quite a history. By that time, the home they purchased was 80 years old. Built originally in 1851, it was constructed in a colonial style. You'd recognize that style on site. It has those balconies and tall arched windows that are familiar to anyone who has spent time in New Orleans. It was built by a fascinating figure in Florida history named Asa Forsyth Tift. Tift was born in 1812 in Connecticut. He came to Florida at a time when salvaging was a prominent business, the kind of job that required one to go out to the raging seas and grab up as much of broken ships as one could. He made such a killing in this job, at one point starting, quote, what would become the most successful salvage operation in Florida, end quote. That left him with quite a fortune. From that, he built himself what was essentially a mansion. When the Civil War broke out, Asa and his brother Nelson joined up with the Confederate cause, designing and funding ships for the Confederate Navy. His main ship design, an ironclad warship named the Mississippi, never saw battle as it was burned to prevent capture by the Union Navy. Both Tift brothers would survive the war and Nelson would go on to found the city of Albany, Georgia. Asa was expelled from Key West during the time of the war, but eventually came back and died there. 80 years later, Pauline Hemingway described the home as a, quote, damned haunted house, end quote. It was falling apart after all these years, and serious work needed to be done if it was going to be properly livable. It took some time, but they eventually restored the house that they lived in throughout the 1930s. Ernest hung his hunting trophies around the walls, many of which still hang there today. A pool was installed in the late 30s by Pauline, quote, the first in-ground pool in Key West and the only pool within a hundred miles, end quote. Hemingway wrote several novels here and today, it is considered the most popular tourist attraction in the city due to its connection to Ernest Hemingway. Roaming its grounds are six-toed cats, but we don't have time for that story today. During his time in the Keys, Ernest did more than write and lounge and renovate. He also sailed and fished. 
This would later influence his novel The Old Man in the Sea, but it was also the time of prohibition, a time when alcohol, the sale and production of it, was outlawed. Naturally, that meant selling and producing alcohol became a lucrative business for many folks throughout the country, including, for certain, Florida. Key West soon became a haven for it, and most everyone had some relationship to the business. Key West was fraught with rum runners and folks trying to prevent those rum runners from succeeding in their smuggling plans. Hemingway was indeed part of the rum running community, as were dozens of other characters determined to keep their city alive and to keep the alcohol flowing. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, the Rum Runners, how prohibition affected our southernmost point, how speakeasies hid in plain sight, and how Rum Runners used the keys to their advantage. Before we get into the story, I wanted to tell you about our sponsor. This episode of Wait 5 Minutes is sponsored by A Trombo Creative. A Trombo Creative is owned and operated by my dear friend of over a decade, Annie. Annie has been designing and costuming professionally for six years and even did costumes for yours truly throughout my years in theater. Through close collaboration, cohesive design, and hands-on fittings, together you and Annie can create the perfect costume for your production, cosplay, special event, or photo shoot. She turns your ideas and inspirations into a wearable reality. You can check out more of her work on Instagram at atrombo.creative, and you can book your appointment at her website, atrombocreative.com. There are links to both of those in the description. Thank you to A Trombo Creative for sponsoring this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. All right, on to my guest this week. Her name is Laura Albritton. Hi, I am Laura Albritton, and I am a writer and an adjunct faculty member at the University of Miami and a fifth-generation Floridian. Did you catch that? Fifth-generation Floridian? Tell me about that. Yep. Well, my Albritton ancestors entered Florida in 1839 when it was still a territory and sort of moved their way down until they eventually settled in the kind of Mayaca State Park region. Laura believes her ancestors came down to Florida around the time that land was being given to Americans to settle on, the exact thing that caused the Seminole people to revolt and sparked the Second Seminole War. Laura herself started out in fiction writing and in researching Florida history, found herself drawn to the work, especially in relation to the Florida Keys. And I got bitten by the history bug and started to research Coconut Grove in, in Miami, and I discovered the original settlers had been in the middle 40s. And to my astonishment, there were people there in like the 1820s and the 1830s. Laura became fascinated by Key West history and started working with other Keys historians. So I uh, ended up meeting a Florida Keys historian named Jerry Wilkinson, who is something of a local legend, particularly in the Middle and Upper Keys. And we ended up writing a book together called Marathon the Middle Keys and uh, have written two more books on Keys history. So, yeah, once you kind of dive down that rabbit hole, so to speak, just <laughs> it sucks you in. It just gets more and more fascinating the more, the more you know, the more connections you can make, the more interesting it is. Laura is actually the historian who pointed me to Tom Hambright from last season's finale. Laura is friends and co-workers with many Keys historians and has learned much from them, but Laura is here because, as she said herself, she has a lot of love for the story of Florida's Rum Runners. 
West was one of the most populated cities in Florida for many decades in the 19th century. Um, Miami didn't exist until much later in the 19th century. I mean, literally, there was nothing there, and then there was only like an army outpost uh, fort. But Key West in the 1820s started to be settled because there were wrecks occurring along the Florida Reef, and uh, Bahamians had been coming over and salvaging, doing wrecking work, and they would get part of the part of the salvage. It could be it could be quite lucrative, quite profitable, even though it's very dangerous work. If you've listened to that two-parter from April, you know this, but a quick summary. British loyalists fled to the Bahamas after the American Revolution, became known as the Conks, and found themselves back on the Keys in the 1800s. Salvage work, as Laura mentioned, was a huge source of profit for the Conks, even as Key West becomes part of American territory. Key West becomes American, American territory, wrecking by the end of the 1820s is regulated. Wreckers have to be American, so you have uh, Bahamians immigrating. In 1829, there are only about 500 people, but by 1838, if you look at drawings of Key West, I mean, it's a, it's a city, it's a township. They say that it had the highest per capita income or wealth of, of almost any city in America because there, was so, there, was so, there were fortunes, literal fortunes being made from wrecking. Really, from from salvaging broken boats. Right, right. Because if you think about it, you had, among others, the Spaniards who were coming from their colonies, right? Um, whether Mexico, South America, uh, Cuba, and they're coming along the. They have to go by the Florida Reef. They have, um, you know, they kind of take the Gulf Stream, and so you have just astonishing treasure, money. I mean, literal gold bars, silver bars at times that were coming from various of their colonies. So not just salvaging parts of boats, but also salvaging the contents of said boats. Beneath the surface of Florida's waters, there are hidden shoals and reefs, so dangerous to boats because they could just rip a hole clean through the bottom. You're done for if that happens. Lighthouses would eventually be put up along these reefs, but we'll get to that next week. There were literal like millionaires that emerged in Key West specifically, although there was wrecking, they would send out their ships along the Florida Keys, even towards the Upper Keys, looking for wrecks, waiting for ships to wreck. And they not only salvaged, helped salvage the cargoes, which were very valuable, but they saved lives. Wreckers were not criminals, and it became a highly regulated industry. Remember Asa Tift from the beginning of the episode? He was one of those people who made millions off of salvaging wrecked boats. He wasn't the only one. The whole city was filling up with people riding on those fortunes, luxuriating in the fruits of their labors. Key West's waters could be the site for boom or bust. It all just depended on your skill and if you seized on the right opportunity. Many would find that to be true as Prohibition came around. Key West was not a party city um, prior to 1920, which is when Prohibition started. The Volstead Stead Act passed at the end of 1919. You know, there were saloons, there were a lot of saloons. Um, in Key West. It was not a tourist town, but it was a working town. There was sponging, turtling, cigar making, wrecking at different various times. So you had, you know, you had a drinking culture, but it wasn't like outsiders would come to Key West to drink. Key West is very close to Cuba, and so you had an easy access to rum and to all kinds, you know, to other types of liquor. So the passing of prohibition in the Florida Keys, particularly Key West, was not popular because there was, there was a 
fairly healthy industry with saloons and what have you. Prohibition came into effect in the United States in 1920. Those who supported the law thought it could have a positive impact on the country, notably in improving health and reducing crime. History allows us to see how foolish that was as an idea, but at the time, many truly believed it could have a positive impact on the populace of this country. It was almost immediately a problem nationwide. Miami and Key West didn't even attempt to hide how openly they were ready to break the rules of prohibition. Police and government officials were often in on the law-breaking, taking bribes and partaking as well. It is in this time that Key West starts leaning into a reputation it now wields as a rollicking, party town. But it was really strange to have prohibition that turned Key West into this town with a real reputation as a drink, a heart drinking party city because suddenly, partially because of its proximity to Cuba, Key West was one of the places people knew you could get a drink in Key West. It was an, it was an open secret. It was no secret at all. And it was also known as one of the places you could get liquor that wasn't watered down. So you can see the appeal. Now, imagine, if you will, that you are a sailor in Key West at this time. You are very near the Bahamas and Cuba, two nations that do not have prohibition. The whole of the Caribbean was known for their rum production, especially in Cuba, which is so close by. If there is big money to be had in selling alcohol and rum is plentiful just across the water, why not use your boat, use your knowledge of the islands, and zoom through the waters south of the Keys for your own profit? It is no surprise, in my opinion, Opinion, that the Florida Keys became the natural place for rum runners. Initially, a lot of the rum running that was happening were individuals. A lot of fishermen realized, oh my gosh, by going to the Bahamas, going to Cuba, they could come back and they could make a lot of money. <laughs> um, it was it was dangerous. Uh, the Coast Guard was out there. There were uh, revenue cutters out there that would chase you down. There were gunfights, there were people who were shot, who were killed. I mean, it, there were rum runners who did not survive this era, although there were some who did and lived to tell their tales. One of the famous people who ran rum was Ernest Hemingway. Now, he ran it for his own purposes. He wasn't, he didn't, he wasn't interested in selling it. That was to stock his own, you know, liquor cabinet. Told you. But Hemingway had a friend who also ran rum and made a serious business out of it. If you've ever visited Key West, you probably have heard of Sloppy Joe's. It is a very famous bar in Key West, maybe the most famous. Well, Sloppy Joe was a person, and in fact, he was a rum runner. But his friend, Joe Russell, of Sloppy Joe's bar fame, uh, was a fishing boat captain and he became more of a serious rum runner. They went over to, to Cuba and would stock up. And he had supposedly a stand that sold rum, um, all kinds of liquor during Prohibition. And it was right outside the naval base, which I think That's shows very a funny. lot of... That's very funny. <laughs> a lot of... Like I said, I mean, it was it was an open secret in QS. Then he got a, a bar that he named The Blind Pig. The Blind Pig was a um, like a slang for a, a speakeasy. If you remember from the episode about Ybor City and breweries from last summer, a blind animal was often used as slang for a speakeasy, a discreet location where one could partake in alcohol consumption during Prohibition. Laura uses the term blind pig in this context. In Ybor City, they were called blind tigers. I've heard both in use. And then um, 
later he he changed the name to the Silver Slipper and then later Sloppy Joe's and Hemingway helped him come up with that name. It was actually based on a bar in Cuba. But Sloppy Joe's only emerged after Prohibition ended after 1933. Uh, then he had a legitimate establishment. But there were other speakeasies in Key West as well. Some of some of uh, the liquor wasn't served at speakeasies at all. It was served at quite nice restaurants like Delmonico's, which was on Duval Street. This was a fine dining restaurant, and I, I imagine they probably served liquor in teapots or something like that. Uh, <laughs> yes. And in fact, one thing I learned is that uh, a tea room, that was a, a, play, a euphemism for, in fact, a place where you could get alcohol. I love that. Considering the backstory of the conks on Key West, some speakeasies being called tea rooms is a delight to me. Laura relates that speakeasies were hardly so clandestine, especially in comparison to how they are portrayed in movies. So, I mean, yeah, so we picture speakeasy, I think, from movies as these sort of dark places where you whisper a password and you go in and it's sort of underground and there are these booths and, and what have you. Some of, the, some of the speakeasies were nothing like that they, in the Keys. They were very rustic places. For example, one of my favorite ones was called the Florence Club, and it was run by a game, guy named Raul Vasquez, who was a rum runner himself. And this was just in the back of his house. He had a conch house, a two-story conch house on Duval Street in the back so it's open air it probably has a you know covering for a roof but open air on the sides it was some chairs a marble slab for a counter a shelf with bottles and um, he had taken stolen a bench from uh, the electric streetcar route on Wall Street and put that there and that was his that was his speakeasy and he also in the uh, in the front of his house in the kind of uh, railing on uh, on his porch uh, he had cut out, you know, there's gingerbread trim you see all, all over Key West, right. beautiful um, woodwork. Well, he had bottles and signs for cards like, you know, spades and what have you carved in to indicate that this was a speakeasy in the back. It was everywhere. You could partake in people's backyards, in restaurants, or in the upstairs rooms of restaurants. You could even sometimes gamble at the same time. It was everywhere. It was part of life. But the ease with which people were consuming alcohol in the Keys was far different from the dangers that faced those who were bringing the alcohol in. That was a far more perilous situation. Luckily, the Conks and the Keys' other residents were familiar with the islands they were skirting around. This was their home, and the homes of their parents and grandparents before them. They were made for this adventure. And these were people who knew every inlet, every every reef, every, you know, hiding hiding hole, they would call them. And so absolutely, they had such an advantage over outsiders, let's say, Coast Guard, off, you know, officers and crew who were not locals. So I'm sure there were some who were locals, but versus outsiders, the people had a tremendous advantage. Um, often they would run without lights, right at night, um, which was apparently um, against the law. <laughs> as if they, but, as uh, if they I'm had not... enough, as if they had enough illegal activity going on. <laughs> right. So what would happen is they ran, would run without lights, and then if the coast guard caught up with them, they, if they were near, um, you know, in shallow water, they would dump their load over, and then they would just be, you know, uh, punished with, you know, not having their lights on. Uh, and that they would come back later and pick up maybe the next day or something when it's safe and the coast was clear, literally speaking, they would come back and pick up 
their their haul of liquor, which came in things called demijohns and other glass bottles or what have you. But sometimes, after they had dumped their liquor, what happened is there were people, other fishermen, who saw this, and they would later come in and steal the rum runner's liquor. They were called, these people were called pelicans, and so they were real opportunists. It was cutthroat out there. Can you even imagine that? You're fleeing, having to abandon your own wares to avoid capture, and some other jerk just capitalizes on your own plight? They knew where, you know, where to hide in the mangroves and what have you, where little creeks, you know, in which they could hide. But they weren't taking the big risk themselves. They weren't going over to Bemini or they weren't going over to Havana, which you could involve some dangerous seas and what have you and weather and all kinds of things. And, of course, the risk of being shot at uh, and, uh, and or arrested, which absolutely happened. One man Laura tells me of was named Paul Lowe. He was caught rum running by the Coast Guard, and to prevent his alcohol being consumed, he dumped the liquor out and lit his boat on fire. He apparently jumped overboard, but was quickly nabbed by the Coast Guard who brought him to a judge in Miami. He was sentenced and served one month. That's it. Was a very light sentence. So you can see there was this local kind of feeling, you know, there were law enforcement local officials who were sympathetic, there were judges who were sympathetic, not all, I'm sure, but these were members of the community who were doing this, and and, uh, prohibition was not popular in the Florida Keys. It was not popular at all, and so there was this more soft-handed approach, and in fact, there was a a raid, a guy came down from Lake Worth, a deputy prohibition um, administrator, this is in 1927, and they called them the Pro-Highs, the Prohibition and agents, right? right. And uh, in, in Key West, they conducted 20 raids and they only arrested six people. No kidding. Think about that. Only six people from 20 raids. That is insane. Right. And this is a, this is a city that is literally crawling with rum runners, speakeasies, restaurants serving liquor. I mean, right? It is... It is becoming famous in the United States. It's a place where you can get a drink. And uh, obviously Key West protected its own. People were warned. You know, people were, you know, hide the thing, do this, don't come into port that day, what have you. So so obviously there was some community feeling, although all, there were also local officers who were, who were serious about the law, but there were also exceptions. And there were all sorts of characters making money in these unusual times. There was lots of people that have not been remembered in history, but there were lots of people who made a mark in their own way. For example, there was a man named Charlie Waite who had been called, quote, King of the Rum Runners, end quote. But that title was soon lost when he was killed by the Coast Guard in 1926. His wife, Marie, then took over his business. Um, there was a woman named, her nickname was Spanish Marie, her, her real name was Marie Waite, and her husband, Charlie Waite, had been a, um, a very successful rum runner, and he was in a shootout with the Coast Guard in 1926. He was based in Miami, and, um, and he died. And so she took over the reins of his business, and how the Keys figures in this, she set up an unlicensed um, radio station in Key West at a secret location, and created this flotilla of speedboats, about 15 speedboats, which would come across from Havana in convoys. And she would 
direct them and, and kind of organize them using this radio radio station. Another interesting character was a man named Cockeyed Billy. There was a guy named Cockeyed Billy. I don't know what his real name was. <clears throat> and I'm assuming that his he had something going on with his eyes because of his nickname. But at any rate, he was he, he was a local. And um, he... Uh, he, he was probably the best of all of them in terms of hiding away. Um, he would They would cut like little holes in the mangroves so they could sneak in, and they would even cover their boats with mangroves because apparently there were Coast Guard planes that were you know, going around, uh, presumably during the day, looking for, looking for these guys. He was known as a, a wonderful swimmer, and when they would be about to catch him, like the Coast Guard, he would drop out, you know, dive over the side and swim and swim and swim and swim and swim, be able to swim so far underwater that he could literally take refuge somewhere, you know, again in mangroves or, or what have you, before they could catch him. And he escaped that way many a time. And But finally, he was in a shootout and he went overboard and he had been shot and they never, they never retrieved his body. And there were people in the Keys who would claim that they had spotted him you know, up when they were visiting Tampa or somewhere, they had caught a, a, a glimpse of Cockeye Billy. And the guy who was telling the story, who's also a rum runner, um, said, you know, yes, but he wasn't that good of a swimmer. <laughs> <laughs> Not to swim all the way to Tampa. That's <laughs> so I... good. Man, that's good. Yeah, yeah. They weren't exactly all surviving their rum running days, but their legends, their myths lived on. But just as routine settled into the rum-running business in Key West, the big guns started causing more chaos. When one thinks of prohibition in the United States, one cannot help but think of the mob and their control over the business. Think Al Capone in Chicago. Organized crime saw huge profit in speakeasies and alcohol sales, so naturally, they had lots of issues with the little guys rum-running in the Keys, especially when the mob had such a presence in Miami. Eventually, the rum runners had more conflict with the mob than they did with the police or Coast Guard. As the decade wore on, the risk and the danger, the constant fear of being arrested or even killed, it started to have its effect on people. The debate was being carried on between the wets and the dries, they called it. You know, obviously the dries were the pro-prohibition folks. I think there were probably mixed feelings. People who had owned bars or wanted to own bars or, or what have you were all for, or just wanted to have a drink in their house without, you know, risking arrest or something, uh, were obviously all for the end of prohibition. But the people who had been earning a lot of money off from running were maybe not so thrilled about it because this would mean the end of their very lucrative business. But I think I think probably the from what I can what I've been able to tell from the pieces in the paper. It seems like the overwhelming majority were for you know were hoping for the end of prohibition, and there I can imagine the whole town was out celebrating when they could finally take a, a legal drink, and ju- that's when Joe Russell of Sloppy Joe's fame, you know, immediately sets up his his legal establishment and <laughs> is there with with his good friend Ernest, you know, raising a glass of something of something good um, to celebrate. On December 5th, 1933, the 21st Amendment was ratified, repealing the 18th Amendment, which was the cause of prohibition. It had been a long 13 years in the country, but it was over. 
The country, though, was different now in many ways. The Great Depression had left its mark in the midst of the Prohibition era, and many Americans had made themselves far more comfortable with crime as their desire to partake in alcohol grew. Key West was no exception. The reputation it received during these rum-running years was one that it began to savor. And even as drinking became legal again, the energy of those years, the independence, the camaraderie, the adventure, it never quite faded away. It just kind of got baked in. Well, Key West has always gone through some cycles of economic boom and bust. Key West's reputation as a party city diminished during the Depression because Key West was not a very happy place to be. It was really on the skids and went bankrupt. But then with World War II, the naval presence um, hugely inflated on the island, and Key West again became known as a party town. You know, there were... There were strip clubs, there were bars, there was gambling, uh, a lot of gambling going on in many of the bars. But then, you know, when the Navy withdraws, Key West's fortunes go down again. So it's gone up and down, up and down. And now I think if you, I just came back from Key West and, you know, Duval Street is booming, uh, the bars are booming. You see your music pouring out of, you know, many, many doors and windows and uh, people seem to be, you know, thrilled to be able to be out and have a drink and, you know, falling in love with QS either for the first time or, you know, revisiting for the 10th time. I've been thinking about that a lot in the past couple months. You know, I'm fully vaccinated, my whole family is as well, and after a year of quietly, cautiously keeping as safe as I can, I can't help but be attracted to that image that Laura is presenting back there, of Sloppy Joe and Ernest Hemingway raising a glass to the hard times behind, to the troubles still around, and to knowing, at least, we can share a drink together. Now, I'm still being cautious, I wasn't exactly a partier before the pandemic, but I am looking forward to the days ahead, to sitting by the water, eating some fried fish, and maybe partaking in some rum, just as the good people of Key West did after the dark years nearly a century ago. That is very aspirational. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you are here. If you are brand new to the show or if this is your first episode, welcome. This season is just getting started, so now is a perfect time to jump in. If you're looking for some episodes similar to this one, I have written about Key West. In fact, last season, just a couple weeks ago, I wrote about Wilhelmina Harvey and the Amazing Conk Republic, which in a way is sort of a parallel story to this one. I can't imagine there would be a Conk Republic if it wasn't for the rum runners of the 1920s. So go check out those episodes. Season 7 of Wait 5 Minutes is brought to you by A Trombo Creative. Turn your ideas and inspirations into a wearable reality. Go book your appointment at atrombocreative.com. And thank you again to A Trombo Creative for sponsoring this episode and season of Wait 5 Minutes. 
If you are looking for more Wait 5 Minutes, there is a website just for you. Go to WFMPod.com for transcripts of current episodes, additional photographs related to the stories, additional reading to the topics we've discussed, and photos from my trips around the state. I'll be updating past transcripts from episodes as well, so you can go back and revisit your favorite previous episodes in new ways. Head to WFMPod.com for more. You can now pick up Wait 5 Minutes merchandise at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Cast and Clay is run by one of my best friends, Sophie Aparizio, who designed each of these stickers alongside the rest of their catalog. We've got a Drink More Water sticker using a photograph by our friend Lauren Nix, a Wait 5 Minutes sticker in the shape of Florida, and a sticker featuring the show's subtitle about Florida by a Floridian in a classic citrus style. Grab them individually or as a set of three at Cast and Clay on Etsy. Head to the link in the description to pick up your WFM merch now. If you did enjoy this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review. It helps the show become more visible, and it means the world to me. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com, and you can follow my personal account on Twitter at WFMNick. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd also like to give a very special thank you to Laura Alberton. We had such a good chat about Rum Runners. I am very much looking forward to working with her again in the future. When I first got in touch with Laura, she provided a list of like several Key West topics that we need to talk about. So you will definitely be hearing from Laura again very soon. You can check out some of the books that she's written at the link in the description. Go read those for more amazing Key West and Keys history. All of the music used in this episode was originally composed. All right, next week, I took a trip to an incredible organization called the Florida Lighthouse Association, and I learned a ton about what they do and some pretty incredible facts about our Florida lighthouses. You are not going to want to miss it. I am so excited for this episode. That will be next Monday. Until then, be good to yourself, be good to others, and please drink more water. Take care of yourself. Have a good week.